Welcome to another episode of Inside Startup Investing. As always, I am your host, Chris Lestrino, founder and CEO of King's Crowd. Inside Startup Investing is a number one podcast for learning about the best startups and investors in the online private markets. If you are a startup investor, this is a show for you. This podcast is powered by King's Crowd's proprietary rating technology that helps us to uncover the best founders and stories that you need to hear about before clicking invest. Now, before we get started, we want to thank our sponsor, LawCloud, the premier solution for founders to prepare to raise capital online. Whether you need to file a Form C, a Form 1A, or a subscription agreement, LawCloud provides the lowest cost, easiest to use toolkit for founders to make raising capital online easier than ever. Now, on to today's show. Today, I am joined by David Shapiro, who is the co-founder and CEO of OpenVC. If you've ever wanted to get into really cool deal flow, late-stage startups that you know a lot about, that you're hearing about how much they're growing, and yet you've realized there's really no way for you to be able to get into that deal flow, this is the podcast you're going to want to listen to. What OpenVC and David's team are building is really, really cool, very innovative, and providing that entry point to help more of us be able to invest in the private markets in a really unique and innovative way. Uh, I'm really excited to learn more about this organization. It's a, it's a concept that I believe a lot in uh, and hope we'll see proliferate in the years to come. So with that, David, thank you very, very much for joining us today on the podcast. Really appreciate it, Chris. Glad to be here. Absolutely. So as always, I love to kick it off by just learning a little bit more about you, the founder, and how you came to found OpenVC. Sure. Um, it's a fairly straightforward story, to be honest, although a few uh, bumps in the road for me personally. Uh, started here in New York in investment banking, uh, working in TMT coverage. I joked that uh, I covered everything that was too boring for proper technology. So that could be media, towers, telecom. Uh, if you ever want to geek out about building management software, I'm definitely your guy. Uh, managed to leverage that experience and moved to Texas, actually, where I worked at a family office, mostly reinvesting legacy assets they held in oil and gas into private equity and real estate. I really enjoyed the opportunity, but couldn't handle the Texas heat and decided, you know, probably opportune time to get back to New York. Uh, when I was exploring opportunities back here in the city, I was approached by my co-founder and we had a really interesting idea to bring newfound access, particularly to late stage privates, but in a package that was easily accessible, much lower fee, and ultimately liquid in a way that would make us unique in market. And we had the opportunity to partner with the New York Stock Exchange. And I thought that is too good an opportunity to pass up. And so I packed my bags, moved back to New York. Uh, that was about two years ago now. And now we're a full-time team uh, backed by the NYSE working to solve this problem. What is OpenVC and what makes it unique? You kind of alluded to it at the beginning of the interview, but OpenVC is working critically to solve the access problem. We believe that investors should have easy tools to access private investing, particularly in the late stage. I think brand companies that people know but really don't have opportunities to touch, like SpaceX, Stripe, Epic Games at all. But they should be able to do so with much lower fees than exist in market without the complexity of navigating, you know, one-off SPVs or other specific offerings and with 
comparative risk frameworks to what they're used to investing in, which for most folks is standard index funds. And so what Open does alongside the New York Stock Exchange is creates those private market indices, which seek to track the latest stage of venture to capture accurate valuations of those companies, and then offer fund opportunities to track those indices, allowing an investor the opportunity not to buy one name or not to you know, go through the hassle of developing a portfolio themselves, but really one-stop shop for the best names in venture, uh, you know, the most innovative companies pre-IPO in that lower fee kind of well-understood index fund framework. It's a really simple concept, and yet it really hasn't been done very much at all to date. Um, talk to me a little bit about some of the challenges you faced in creating this kind of unique and innovative fund product. There are many. I, we definitely don't have time <laughs> in the interview to go through all the challenges, but I'll just point to a few. You know, I say we had to create private market indices, and there's actually a lot of work that went into that. It took about two years to build the data pipes necessary to really be able to follow these companies in an accurate manner. And that's so important because when we think about our target investor, whether they be an institutional looking to diversify into a lower fee framework or a more retail-oriented investor that simply wants a basket of names, uh, the information out there is very poor. And that creates disparate outcomes in market. That favors those in the know. And we think that transparency is really key in our core effort of making this market more accessible and liquid. So our key uh, challenge initially was creating those accurate indices that ultimately could be used to write investable products around. And thankfully, you know, with a partner like ICE, which administers the LIBOR index, they have deep, deep institutional expertise in uh, index administration, we've been able to come up with a methodology that we know uh, will be kind of a definitive benchmark of the space. On the fund side, the challenge is really finding the right structure. There we've been blessed again with our, our partnership with ICE, but in order to eventually create something that achieves our goals of accessibility, liquidity, and low fees, we've structured the product in such a way that it's private fund today, but we have a distinct target to convert it to either an interval or tender offer structure, or ultimately actually a listed closed-in vehicle, where you'll simply be able to go on to you know, Robinhood or E-Trade or whichever brokerage house you use and purchase the fund like you would any other ETF. Just a few questions on the technical front. One, is there some parameters that you kind of put around your investment thesis, like we want companies that we think will you know, IPO in X number of years, and we're looking for X valuation? Um, and then two... From a tracking standpoint, once you've invested in a company, um, you know, when you look at those investment opportunities, if you're going to make this a, a liquid fund, uh, tracking the value of those companies over time, is that done on a daily basis, a monthly basis, a quarterly basis? How does that work? I'll kind of answer them in reverse. So in terms of tracking, once we get into a company, you know, the fund has its valuation policy and the index has uh, its own. They're actually independent. The index aims to strike every day, right? So if you want to be that definitive, you know, if you want to be the S&P 500 of privates, you really have to bring that level of precision to the market. And that's why it took so long, full disclosure, to create the data platform necessary to be able to do that. We had to tap channels in the secondary market. You know, we worked very closely with data aggregators there. We had to develop scraping algorithms for company actions. We had to work with mutual funds and their marks. 
Uh, and we had to create a methodology that incorporated all of that into a proper strategy. So that will happen daily. The fund, like any other fund in the closed-in space, has to strike a NAV. Ours will be quarterly, um, and there will be you know investing opportunity around the NAV as it relates to that strike. We want to keep it as simple as possible. And we think that's a key distinguisher with respect to those who believe that they've got a really specific thesis or want to move into a group of four to five names. Um, we want to create the bet the market strategy. And so our thesis is fairly straightforward. It is the largest venture-backed private companies domiciled in the United States. These are companies you know, based on size that are most likely to IPO in the nearer term, bringing a liquidity event. Pre-IPO has very good track record rather to other, excuse me, relative to other asset classes. Uh, and we don't want to complicate it beyond that. So our pitch is, look, have the opportunity and you have that specific expertise in a name, God bless, right? We just think there should be a really easy way to say, you know what, I'm going to buy the market. And that's exactly what we've created with a thesis that tracks the largest names. What's the uh, trick to getting access to these types of deals? Uh, I wish there were an, e were an easy answer, to be honest. And hopefully, you know, assuming we're successful, particularly with the index front of things, bringing more transparency to the market, uh, that will bring more liquidity. And, you know, that, that answer will kind of be self-evident. But today, it's a mishmash of working with institutional and retail-oriented secondary brokers, uh, specific relationships we had coming into the inception of this business and have garnered over the last two years to be able to source some of the nadir names. And then it's how the portfolio is actually constructed. So, you know, we're not Spider 500 to the S&P 500. We'll never be able to achieve 98, 99% replication. It doesn't actually matter because of the way we set things up. You know, we're cap-weighted index. We track uh, with a cap-weighted fund we can buy a very specific subset of the names and still achieve great replication. So between that and our channels, we're very, very confident in the sourcing pipes we have today. Once a company IPOs, is there kind of a standard holding period that you'll hold those assets? Or is it really kind of see where the company's at at that point and make a de decision based on? Um, in the spirit of being you know, interestingly boring, it's the same for everyone. We want to pass the cash back to the investor. And our target liquidity vehicle when the fund converts from that private fund into a, a listed vehicle will be a business development company, which actually can pass back tax advantage dividends to holders. So after the lockup period, which will almost always be subject to, uh, the fund would sell. The principal would be put back into the fund to be reinvested into presumably new constituents at our annual rebalance. And then the rest will be passed back as a tax advantage dividend. I like that a lot. So for investors, you know, I'd be curious to hear um, some of the initial interest. Where is it coming from to invest in this fund? Is it more institutional, just being able to get that exposure to kind of the late stage markets? Um, and then how does this work for retail investors right now? Today, it is a bit more institutional. And they're looking at this as a market opportunity investment. We have seen significant degradation of value of most of our index constituents uh, in the secondary market. And just to highlight some of the benefits of our more accurate index, our index has actually declined, you know, with those market valuations being reset. Many other private market indices are flat from 2020 live, primarily 
no pun intended, on primary round valuations. So our index shows the buying opportunity in market. Institutionals like that. We're an easy way to buy the basket quickly. Moreover, if they've already got a thesis, we're a diversification hedge that didn't really exist. For let's call in mass affluent but still accredited retail investors, we're a way to get rid of the headache, right? Low fee, you get the basket. Uh, we're as diversified um, as any portfolio you would create, you know, over a very long period if you were to do it yourself. And you don't have to go through the hassle of a wealth platform. You don't have to go through the hassle of a fund of funds. Um, we try to keep it as simple as possible. We'll aim to convert within three years, um, which is also a much faster liquidity timeline than most investors of that category are used to. So those thinking about liquidity issues in the near term were also a little bit more advantageous. Non-accredited retail, not today, but when we convert the fund from that private vehicle into either an interval fund or listed BDC, that's the dream, you know, when anybody will be able to open up um, their brokerage account and buy then and there. Yeah, it's certainly a world that I would love to live in, but obviously that takes time to uh, to take those steps. Nonetheless, um, an advantage that I kind of perceive from from looking at this opportunity is, you know, if you look at some of the other secondary marketplaces that are out there, just a very, very high minimum for each individual investment. And if you look at, you know, some of the minimums that you've come out with on, on the OpenVC product across a diversified basket, now your minimum on each one of those individual investments has become dramatically lower than anything you'll find in kind of the traditional online secondary markets. Um, so for me, it feels like it's a, a much more attractive entry point for individual investors to be able to come in um, get that diversified basket, but also have small minimums in each company rather than having to put up 100K in each individual company, which is a really high bar to overcome, even if you're mass affluent, right? I completely agree. You know, if I'm sitting at home with 100K and aching to get into this market, I would much rather put it into, you know, 30 to 40 companies than sticking my finger in the air and picking the one to two where one, that minimum is appropriate, but two, I'm confident in the outcome. Now, you talk about some pretty simplistic criteria to decide what to invest in. And I, frankly, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, but from a due diligence perspective, are there certain things that you guys are, are checking the box on and making sure prior to investment? The theory, right, the 100,000 foot view, I wouldn't even call it the 30,000 foot view. But the 100,000 foot view is very simple. The actual implication and execution of that view is actually quite complex, right? So to get to that top 50, to execute that methodology, to collate all these sources, and strike an accurate price and then an accurate weighting, um, you know, involves, as I kind of mentioned before, collating all these disparate sources, making sure you have a methodology that's robust enough to be considered institutional from an index regulatory standpoint, making sure that the fund which follows that methodology would actually be distributed through, you know, eventually when this is listed, wealth houses that focus on retail. Um, and that includes specific screens to your point around excluding companies um, that you might nominally be in the top 50 uh, from that simplistic view, but wouldn't actually be appropriate for the index. These can be companies, for example, that have almost no likelihood of IPO. These can be companies that have been private for so long so as to not be considered as venture-backed. And we do not discriminate on sector with one uh, small exemption, biotech, which almost never trades in the secondary and is consequently very hard to value from that institutional perspective. 
um, is nominally excluded from the index. That may change in the future, um, but today, you know, when we're thinking about that consistent institutional quality, it's a decision we have to make. Let's talk, uh, take a step back and talk a little bit about the business model. You talked about lowering fees and making this more accessible for folks. So let's talk about the fee structure. What does that look like? The fee structure is fairly straightforward. Uh, we will never charge a performance fee, so 0% carry, and we have a 2% management fee. We want to be opt to kind of more nuanced indices and index funds in market today in public equities. Um, and we want to be the cheapest growth fund you've ever considered. So two and zero sets us up in that aspirational you know, kind of BlackRock Vanguard camp. We always want to be on the investor's side in that vein, in admitting that, hey, we are not really an active manager. We are servants to the methodology of the index and the index itself, uh, we felt it inappropriate to raise fees much higher than that. Something I'd really like you to hone in on is what is the difference for folks who don't know of really investing in those later stage deals that are getting relatively close to IPO versus the really kind of early stage markets, you know, your pre-seed to series A? Yeah. So it's a risk game, right? If you strike it out of the park with a pre-seed or series A deal for a typical venture manager, for example, uh, you can return the entire fund off of one of those deals. The problem is to get one of those, you typically, if you're really good, have to write something like 20 to 25 checks. If you are okay, you might have to write 50 checks. And most funds aren't designed to write that many checks. So we think that when creating a product to access you know, better return than public equities, it's just a bit too risky from a data perspective and from kind of a, you know, for lack of a better term, throwing the dice perspective to focus on the earliest stage. Where does that leave you? Well, companies have been staying private much, much longer. They are pricing a lot of growth that used to be available to public investors uh, in the public markets as private companies, you know, kind of IPO, you could think of as used to occurring around series D or E. Now companies are, you know, and I think we're on Stripe Pref G or something like that these days, which means they're keeping all of that value in the private markets for those investors. So consequently, you have this very unique sphere of companies that is still high growth, that is substantially de-risked from the early stage and isn't accessible to a great majority of investors that would have liked to take advantage of that growth in prior IPOs. We are effectively a bridge back to what used to be the growth one could expect from newly IPO'd companies uh, that are staying private longer, uh, but still fundamentally de-risked as it relates to the earliest stage of venture investing. This is definitely the right time, uh, if you ask me, and I think your index is showing it, uh, to buy into something like this and that the markets have come down pretty dramatically. So entry point wise, this is a really exciting time because one, companies have been pushed further along and two, their values have actually come down pretty dramatically from kind of the height of 2020, 2021. Um, Wonderful entry point moment. How do you think about just from a macro level, you know, as we enter the next bull market cycle, there's going to be some amazing returns that likely come from all of this, Um, but then we're going to hit another, you know, bull market peak. And how do you think about from an indice standpoint, when everything becomes overvalued, how do you manage in a world like that to try and help mitigate downside and poor returns. Look, we've got a higher beta 
than the NASDAQ 100 and the S&P 500. The highs are higher and the lows are a bit lower. Thankfully, you know, we've done some really good work on our correlation uh, with those indices, and we're actually fairly uncorrelated. So what that means in layman's terms is when you're investing um, re in a reactionary manner, let's just say, with the bull run, um, we and our returns are somewhat independent from that. And so when you look at our index relative to public markets indices like the NASDAQ 100, et cetera, uh, there is real opportunity, regardless of market condition, to diversify one's portfolio outside of just wrote public equities to really hit the nail on the head in terms of you know what do you do in a bull market look this is why it's so important to diversify right there there is very precious little opportunity if you're coming into a single main to get a deal when everything's hot if you still believe as we do in kind of the ongoing growth of late stage privates given all the dynamics we just spoke about with everybody staying private much longer even in an up market, you're going to want to capture some of that. But the only way to make sure you're getting some discounts along with all of the up is by buying a big enough basket. And so I would much rather people get in today, you know, when uh, the pricing is good, human nature and logic doesn't always follow, you know, proper buying patterns from an investor standpoint. So we'll see if that, that happens. But the fundamental truth of index investing is, you know, it's usually going to beat the market. We've seen that for the last you know, 20 years kind of been proven out relative to active managers and public equities. And so I would much rather be there in an up or down market based on that diversified opportunity set than uh, picking on the highs and selling individually on the lows. When you look at a company like SpaceX, right, as we think about kind of your index and how you're building it, um, does a company like that fit into that type of strategy or is this a company that you think is you know a little bit oversold a little bit overhyped um how do you think about an organization like that that just continuously does these like massive secondaries mm -hmm. uh spacex is definitely uh, a unique company you know we really want to be a very friendly face to our constituents with respect to being a monetization tool for them eventually since we're going to need to buy a lot of their their stock in the secondary uh, they I think don't apply in terms of uh, qualification out of the index. You know, some people say, oh, SpaceX will never go public. Why do you have them in there? I don't really agree with that. I think that there are ample opportunities for SpaceX, particularly around Starlink, to achieve uh, real return for existing and new investors. And we're excited to help people take advantage of that. Um, you know, they are the 800-pound gorilla in the index. We're cap-weighted, and they are number one. They are one of the only companies trading at a premium in the secondary market per our, our pricing. But that goes to show, you know, their individual strength when everyone else is down, they've, they've maintained. Um, and you also have a bit of the Elon effect, you know, where his companies tend to do a touch better in the secondary market, but um, not always, right? And so, look, I think SpaceX is fantastic company. I think I've, I've got real near-term paths to liquidity for their existing shareholders. I think in terms of being at the head of innovation, I don't need to tell anybody that they certainly qualify in that respect. And again, we're excited to help people uh, get access. Love him or hate him, you never bet against him. And I, I, I do believe they've built quite an incredible <laughs> business there. And I, I know many, many people who would like to be able to get exposure to that. So actually, that's really cool to hear.
In no particular order, we're pretty sector diversified just because, again, we're looking at size, not uh, sector as the primary driver. We've got names like Stripe. We've got names like Epic Games, Fanatics, uh, GoPuff, Databricks, Anderol. Anyone who, let's just say, is a proper unicorn, I didn't raise a deleterious uh, deal terms just to be able to say they're a unicorn, but a proper unicorn with real growth prospects and significant buy-in from existing venture capitalists. We've taken a very, very serious look at our platform to determine who is the top 50 and just data now on over 1,300 companies in all of our sourcing categories uh, for relevant data inclusion. Many more companies have some data, but not all of that relevant data for inclusion. And so we've got the cream of what people want with respect to focusing where we have at the latest possible stage. Um, that said, you know, there's always opportunity to expand the index. There's always opportunity, and this is where we get excited about the future, to create further indices, you know, sector-specific indices. AI is very hot right now. We've had a lot of requests to launch an AI-specific index. We've had requests from foreign investors to launch a global index, so X US unit. And the sky's kind of the limit in terms of what of our what our platform can ingest and, and spit out in the future. So today it's companies like the ones I've mentioned that are really kind of the best of the best, closest to IPO from a U.S. standpoint. Tomorrow we are you know, beholden to future investor demand, but wherever the market takes us, we're flexible and ready uh, to be able to deploy. I was excited to hear about uh, Fanatics. That's a, a company that I've followed for a long time. And uh, man, they just keep pushing the ball down the field and are doing some really, really interesting things. And if you haven't paid attention to them in a while, they're absolutely worth a look. That's a very, very nice, company. nice pun on Fanatic, pushing the ball down the field. I like that. <laughs> yeah, there we go. 100%. Uh, well, listen, this has been really, really interesting, David. If you wouldn't mind, you know, what's your final pitch for those who are interested in OpenVC and potentially putting some funds into this fund? Yeah, I, I take it back to simplicity. If you want access to companies that are at the forefront of innovation, if you want to capture free IPO return in the private markets as companies stay private much longer, if you want to do that in a fee framework that, frankly, we see as unbeatable relative to other growth options and with diversification that is very, very hard to come by for your solution. It's simple. It's cheap. It's got the best brands one can think of. And if you want to bet the market, where your solution. Love it. Well, for those who are interested, you could check them out. We'll drop the link uh, in the podcast so that you could check it out and uh, invest in the fund. Really love this unique and innovative offering that you all are providing. Thank you very much for your time and insights today, David. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Chris. Thanks so much for listening to the show. If you want to use the same tools I do to find amazing founders like the ones I have on the show to power your investment decisions, you can head on over to kingscrowd.com backslash startups to try out our Edge Toolkit for 30 days free.